Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SCI in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast, I'm Nina Copeful. Coming up, Australia has experienced its worst mass shooting since the Port Arthur massacre of 1996. So, how did the media go in, reco- in covering it? Plus, Facebook's attempt at a comeback and the royal wedding. Do Australians care? Joining me in the studio is Sarah Dingle, Jewel Walkley Award-winning investigative reporter and presenter with the ABC. Hi, Sarah. Hi. (laughs) Isabel Lowe, founder of Media Diversity Australia with years of journalism experience. Hi. Hi. And on the line from Gippsland, Victoria, is Jeanette Severs, multi-award-winning journalist and photographer, specialising in rural and agricultural news. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nina. Stories about the Margaret River murders dominated media over the weekend and early this week as the nation responded to the worst mass shooting since the Port Arthur massacre of 1996. If you haven't heard what happened yet, Katrina Miles, her four children aged 8 to 13, along with two other people, were found dead by police early Friday morning. The media is, is widely reporting the event, which took place at the family's West Australian rural property, as appearing to be a murder-suicide. But whether reports varied is exactly what the murder's motivation or intentions were. There's quite a lot to unpack here, but Sarah, I just wanted to ask for your initial response to this story and the way it was covered. Was there anything that stood out for you or anything that caught your eye in the way the story has progressed um, through the week? Well, I mean... You talked about the rush to determine motivation. I think that's pretty normal. The media always want to know why because people that's exactly what people will be saying to each other. Why, why, why? And from everything that we've heard um, from the community of Margaret River, they're um, a pretty tight-knit community and they were as shocked as anyone else. You know, there's significant trauma in that community now uh, following this incident. So um, I think... The rush to look for answers is to be expected. Um, I think what probably um, has stood out to me in all of this is that we won't know the answers for some time and, in fact, we may never know the answers because police have stressed that they're not looking for anyone else in connection to these killings. Um, Everyone involved is dead. So we may never know. Um, And that's something that doesn't fit with the demands of the 24-hour news cycle, but it's very relevant, I think. Mm, That's interesting. Was that what stood out to you, Jeanette, as well? I suppose a couple of things stood out for me. The police commissioner calling it a multiple homicide and a suicide um, rather than a mass murder. So, you know, sometimes it's also about the language that we're using. Um, Calling it a multiple um, or a mass murder actually really, really dives into the agenda of the pro-gun lobby 
in America and certainly from an overseas perspective, that's how it was picked up um, comparing Australia and its criticism of uh, the Australian media's criticism of um, uh, mass shootings in America. Um, basically, you know, Australia was subjected to that in reverse process. American media, American commentators, and just you know anyone with a Twitter account essentially, who is a pro-gun lobbyist, um, was going well, na 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 na. You know, look at you now. How can you criticise us? So again, it's about you know the language that was being used and calling it a mass murder and the first one since Port Arthur kind of um, fed into that agenda. So I suppose from that perspective. I'd be considering the agenda of the media that were actually using that narrative. And can I jump in there? Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, yeah. Nina. Yeah. I just no, wanted I to talk to I'll... Jeanette a bit about that because so you're you're a regional reporter, Jeanette. Yeah. My understanding, I haven't like studied Australia's full history of gun laws properly, but. Um, it seems to me a, a real misconception to have American media going, well, look, your gun laws don't work because these were firearms held by someone in a licence in a rural setting. Like, that's... Yeah. That shows that gun laws were in existence and, you know, everything had been done. I, I just don't see how uh, this plays into, you know... Um, the kind of agendas um, about not having gun laws because oh, these were guns absolutely. that were not targeted by the buyback. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. And, and, you know, it did, I suppose, annoy me, that content of, 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 langu- of, of how it was being reported. Um, you know, just, just from a perspective, and yes, I have been around long enough to um, be pretty au okay with the gun laws, because when um, the new gun laws came in under the then Howard government, I decided I didn't want to have a shooting licence anymore. Um, I didn't have a purpose for that shooting licence. I wasn't doing any recreational shooting. I wasn't doing any hunting. So I decided not to worry about becoming a licensed hunter anymore. Obviously, I had my licence up until that point. Um, And... Yeah, so I, when it came up for renewal, I never bothered. But by law in this country, if you own a firearm, you should be licensed to own that firearm. Obviously, there are firearms, as there are anywhere, um, in a black market um, situation. But um, for most people, it's a legitimate um, activity that they're legitimately licensed and therefore legitimately allowed to own guns. I don't know in this situation if the gentleman that, or if the man that used the gun had a licence. I haven't. Yeah, I believe that he was licensed. Yeah, he was. Okay, so that's good. Um, but yeah, that's the bottom line. We, I mean, I see where you're coming from. We have licensed ownership, yeah. Jeanette, like, you know, I think part of what you're also trying to say is that in the rush to contextualise this tragedy, from, yeah. from the ones before it, they, as in journalists, are unknowingly walking into a narrative that um, might be used by, uh, you know, the 
pro-gun lobbyists um, for their own yes. use, right? Yes, and that's exactly right. And also, and also ignored the fact that this is actually domestic violence. Yeah. Well, you I know, mean, it, it falls into that category very much so. I didn't see any of that coverage come from within Australia in terms of the gun licensing story. That was, I mean, from my understanding, that was something that it's came external. from the US yeah. and that um, was them using something that was tragic that happened here to kind of justify their own gun um, Also, Australia's always been held as an example, lauded as an yeah. example over yeah. there. So I think something terrible happens here. Yeah. They also jump on it. They're like, oh, okay, it's not you yeah. know all peaches and cream and yeah. rainbows and Oh, unicorns. you don't have utopia. Look at yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. I yeah, think outside of that. House in order, that's right, yeah. Yeah. And then but the, I, I just feel that it's um, like you don't ex- – it's it's hard to have this level of detail if you're not from Australia. But um, when so, Jeanette, please do correct me because you might remember this much better than I do. But when John Howard enacted the new gun laws after Port Arthur, there mm. was no suggestion that all guns would be taken off farmers. Like the, they were allowed no, to no, keep no, and hold no, licenses absolutely. for those firearms. So so they were not the target of the buybacks anyway. And yeah, anyway, yeah. So yeah, there's, there's so many multiple things going on outside of the gun issue, you know? It's oh, just, yeah, it's like yeah. A, such a human element. Like there's, you know, domestic yeah. violence, mental health, and then not to mention support for families with autistic children. Mm. And I, I don't think that that's been fully explored either, you know, for, for a family who's, you know, homeschooling their children. What kind of struggles are they trying to overcome yeah, in that yeah, process. Just, just from the start, you kind of, you know, I suppose the journalist antenna went, mm, there's, you know, there's a bigger story here. Mm. Um, so to come back know, to an issue that you did write, that we've raised a few times and kind of touched on but haven't explored more, is this idea, this idea of domestic violence. And mm. what I think we saw over the weekend was the transition from this portrayal of the the father of the children who were murdered as someone who has been accused um, by his ex-wife who ended up, you know, murdered in this case, of harassing her, of doing things like parking outside her house, unwanted attention from him, to this portrayal of him as this mournful sad character and I want to know if there's any concern for you all and how he was portrayed and how um, he was talked about in the media and whether that was contextualized in an adequate way. The beauty about not being part of the 24-hour news cycle anymore I have to say is that I actually didn't see the transformation of this the portrayal of this character you know but I think that that it's not a two-dimensional thing and that the media didn't get it wrong it's as they learned more about this person he evolved in their eyes. And so, you know, it's it's just the way that these, you know, linear news shows cover it because there's always has to be something new. So, I mean, mm. I, I, I think that that is just how, you know, the journey and portrayal of a very complex person of which, as, you know, Sarah says, we might not ever get to the bottom of. Mm. And, and that's how it kind of emerges, that it's not like a closed case. Ooh. Yeah, I, I, so I'm not part of the 24-hour news cycle either because we do longer-form stuff. Um, but I think it's possible, I mean, who knows, but it's possible that as a result of initial criticisms, um, the father, Aaron Cockman, then felt he needed to give a public statement 
about uh, this tragedy. I mean, from what I understand, talking to our reporters on the ground, um, it was quite a surprise that he decided to um, give a public statement and it was a very long public statement. I mean, he spoke for a very long time. So perhaps the initial quick-to-judge coverage made him feel like he needed to do that. Mm. Um, you know, kind of the tail wagging the dog, I guess. So let's talk a little bit about some of the coverage that emer- emerged from that press conference. Um, he made statements, quotes um, such as, and this is about his father-in-law, the man who is accused of, of this murder-suicide act. He said, Peter didn't snap. He thought this through. All the kids, they looked peaceful. He did a good job, a really good job. So, I mean, what emerged from this was kind of this good bloke headline that we saw floating around. Um, and I want, I, I guess I, let's discuss that and unpack that. Jeanette, do you think that that was the right way of reporting what came out of that press conference? Oh, I think the entire situation is probably a bit bizarre. I don't really understand it. Um, but then I, I don't know how any of us can understand why someone... We, none of us can understand why someone wants to take their own life um, unless we want to do that as well. And we, I, you know, I don't understand how someone can take someone else's life either. So that level of violence is just beyond my capacity to understand. In terms of sort of the media running with these quotes, using the good bloke image that emerged from this, um, was there enough critique that went with that image or with that message that came out of the press conference, Isabel? Oh, absolutely not. No. I mean, even just scrabbling around trying to, you know, get someone from that community um, to quote something about the family when they'd only lived in the community for three years, which is a very short period of time in a rural area to really get to know anybody. Um, yeah, it was very much... I just felt, as, from, as a journalist and looking at in from the outside, that there was this mad scramble going on to try and get anybody talking about anything and, you know, uh, in a lot of respects, the community was disrespected in that way. Um, no one really knew these people from what I've been able to, to work out. Um, even some of their neighbours barely knew them. So, and, and that would be fairly typical because it does take you a while to get um, to become familiar with your neighbours in a rural area and, um, and to be part of that community. You, yes, People look out for each other more in rural communities, but, um, uh, you know, it does take a while to be, to be accepted and to be well-known within that community. We don't, I don't know anything about these people and, and how much they were entrenched into that community, but from the outside it just seems like they weren't. I think if it was Aaron Cockman, did you, is that his name? If it was Aaron's intention to take control back of the narrative that he saw, and that's why he came out and made this surprise statement, then for all purposes it actually worked because they quoted him in that context and they didn't critique it like you were suggesting, Nina. Um, and I think that the media's job is to paint an as accurate a portrayal of this family as they could, but 
when you have a readily available information in the form of, ver- of a very long statement come directly from a family member, it's just too enticing to not print in full. Um, and then, you know, you'll say, okay, let's put that up now and we'll, we'll think about the big picture later. Well, I mean, should we be even be asking at this point after listening to you all talk for a little <laughs> while if we should have covered this at all? I mean, Sarah, you made the point right at the beginning that the police have said they're not going to do um, any further investigation into this. Oh, they are. They're investigating. They're investigating. But they're not, oh, they they're would, not they seeking any other, yeah. other person other, involved yeah. in the event. They accept that everyone involved in the event uh, was was one of the bodies they found at the farmhouse, basically. Mm. And so... Do we not then have the end of the narrative and should the media have just left it alone? You know, is there, is there a reason to still be talking about this? Well, I think some of the I think some of the issue is around that 24-hour news narrative or the 24-hour news cycle. Um, you know, editors and producers saying we need something new, we need something new. It puts pressure on people. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of young journalists that aren't being mentored in our system nowadays. Um also, we've, we're competing now against, you know, social media and people putting up their views or their, you know, I knew these people and this is, you know, this is what I think. Um, and that's also feeding into that that continual news cycle, whether it's, whether it's news coming from a reputable um, public source that's accountable, um, like we work for, or whether it's um, news coming from opinion or, you know, the friend of, the best friend of someone who's, you know, who's experienced a tragedy. And just on, um, you raised social media there, Jeanette, I saw a really um, kind of perfectly encapsulated tweet by Juanita Phillips, who is great on Twitter. I really appreciate her tweets. Mm -hmm. Um, And she tweeted a photo of the Sunday Telegraph, and the headline was, the good yes. bloke, and good bloke was in quotation marks, but as Juanita tweeted, nowhere in the article did anyone actually say the words good bloke. Like, did anyone even yes. say that? Or was that yes. just a sub making this up because of bias, whether conscious or unconscious? Um, and yeah, and why was there this need to, to excuse this bloke's behaviour when the police were fairly clear that there'd been a multiple homicide and a suicide. Um, why was there even a need to, to for the media to start searching around and going, well, you know, this bloke was good because the idea of setting up some guy as being a good bloke was that he couldn't possibly have perpetrated a particular crime because he's a good bloke. What justification was there for that narrative? I think that's a very good question. Um, And I think we've seen that before, you know, in in other cases of murder-suicides where um, the issue at hand is domestic violence, like uh, the Hunt family, another regional tragedy, um, Mm. which was a father, a wife and three children in, um, was it the Lockhart... Lockhart Valley, Jeanette? Yeah, up in New South Wales. I think yeah. it might have been there, yeah. And I think there were similarly um, kind of good bloke sort of headlines going around in the wake of that tragedy, if I remember correctly. Um, so yeah. And similar criticisms around that. Yeah, yeah, but the criticisms always, you know, well. take a, a little while. It's like, you know, 
I don't know if anyone reads Terry Pratchett, but it's, you know, a lie can get around the world in a day, but while the truth is still getting its boots on. Like, it takes a while for the crit- critiques to come to through. To enter the system, yeah. And you wonder what's yeah. happened in the meantime. Yeah, you really do. For sure. <laughs> we might leave it on that note. I will just say um, before we end this segment that Our Watch, the national organization founded to prevent violence against women and their children, sent out an email this week to journalists just to say if, if any media is reporting on the tragedy, they should include experts in this field and also include the number at the end you can call if you are impacted by sexual assault, um, domestic or family violence. So that's 1-800-RESPECT. It's 1-800-737-732 or you can visit 1-800-RESPECT.org.au and in an emergency always call triple zero. You're listening to Father State. You're with me, Nina Copel. I'm speaking to Sarah Dingle, investigative reporter and presenter with the ABC, Isabel Lowe, founder of Media Diversity Australia, and on the line from Gippsland, Victoria, is Jeanette Severs, multiple award-winning independent journalist and photographer. Facebook is reporting that they've taken down almost 1.3 billion fake accounts in six months in what they're calling an attempt to target phony accounts from bad actors. Facebook says there were fake accounts targeted, including commercial spam, false advertising, fraud, malicious links, and promotion of counterfeit goods. Facebook said these fake accounts were sometimes created by individuals misrepresenting who they are, but they could also be involved with scam. When we think about the fact that there are 2.2 billion users on Facebook, getting rid of 1.3 billion accounts is not an insignificant percentage. Do we feel as a panel like Facebook is taking a decisive positive step after what's been quite a difficult year for them in light of Cambridge Analytica revelations. Um, Isabel, we'll start with you. Well, yeah, I don't think that, you know, questioning the intention of Facebook deleting all these accounts is really what's at stake here. For them, it's about a matter of um, viability at this point. And we were just looking at the share price a few moments ago and it was quite remarkable to see that it had plummeted straight after those um, reports from Channel 4 about Cambridge Analytica. So they have shareholder concerns to answer to. And now that they've got, you know, Mark Zuckerberg fronted the Senate inquiry, they've got the government on their back. Really, it's a no-brainer for them to continue to kind of monitor and keep a very human element about the platform going. Um, it's really not in their interests to do so. So, I mean, why wouldn't they? And there was this initial response after the Cambridge Analytica story broke that everyone was going to get off Facebook. Um, there was, you know, a Twitter hashtag, yeah. as all serious campaigns have. I don't think anyone's, I mean, have you, any of you gotten off Facebook? So it did since not then? work as effectively as the Uber campaign, right? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. Um, I mean, I guess the question is, though, does this really matter? One of the other things they were speaking about doing recently as kind of like a campaign to win back popularity, I guess, is a clear history function. So similar to deleting your browser history, you can apparently now remove information about your actions on Facebook. So all of your interactions with different apps or um, things you've clicked on maybe on Facebook would not no longer be there. Jeanette, does that seem like something that you think people would like in light of the Cambridge Analytica scandals and issues? Hmm, that's such a multifaceted question, that is. Um, I think most people don't even worry about uh, using a Facebook account. Um, I I was actually quite 
uh, amused by the by the commentary and the kerfuffle around um, the Cambridge Analytica, I don't know, scandal, shall we call it, whatever. For me, it wasn't a scandal. I just kind of looked at everything and thought, yes, I know Facebook's owned by somebody. I know it's a private, um, private enterprise. I know it's accountable to shareholders. When you're accountable to shareholders, um, your purpose is to actually make the best buck that you possibly can for them. And um, and I know that anything I put up on Facebook, uh, no matter what my privacy settings are, is um, is basically a free for all for anyone that uh, that I'm connected to and anyone who's connected to them, and so on and so on. So that's the I suppose that's the contract that I that I'm part of by being part of Facebook, and I just failed to understand why people were getting hysterical about the fact that their data was supposedly stolen. Um, what I was more concerned about was how that data was manipulated or may have been manipulated. But again, I'm not surprised. I mean, I think this is what this platform is about, and what all social media platforms are about, no matter whether it's Google or um, Twitter or, you know, any of the hundreds of other things like Instagram and multiple things I can't even think of, to be perfectly honest, because they're the only ones that I'm on. Hmm. Sarah, do you agree? Do you think that maybe it was a bit of an overreaction and that this is just another sort of kind of unimportant um, act from Facebook because it wasn't really a big issue to begin with? I think if you're serious about valuing your privacy, you're not on Facebook. Um, but I also think one of the things that really upset people, um, and I think this is probably fair, is the notion that not only is your information harvested and and sold, but you don't get a say in who it's sold to. Um, and that is fair, because when we have a transaction in the real world, if we sell something, we sell it to someone. And we know both ends of that transaction. Um, but online you don't and it might sound like stating the obvious but that people still haven't come to grips with that and that that makes them very unhappy as we've seen in recent weeks and months um yeah so i don't really know if facebook can do much to win back trust but i think facebook is just relying on inertia and i know that you know I'm pretty inert sometimes, so yeah. I, <laughs> I think I'm not agreeing with you about <laughs> the inertia part, but I, I, around the big data issue, and I think that this is a situation where the market is now trying to correct itself. But you know, the pla- platforms and governments haven't really kept up with the issue around big big data or data. Yeah, are we American or Australian? I don't know. know. Who am I today? Let's just segue into, you know. (laughs) Um, That that it's it's like when everyone started using this platform, Facebook, it was more of a way of plugging into a bigger community and um, this need to reach out. But I think that along the way, maybe people just kind of lost sight of actually um, how empowering it is for them to keep their identity online and that they are they own their identity and I guess they forgot about that and then 
you Candy know, Crush or, happened. Exactly. <laughs> Candy Crush happened. You signed up, put your email and your credit card details in there, and Bob's your uncle. You know, and so it it just it just kind of ran away from them. And, yeah. And and I really know, need are, to know need to what animal educated. I am this month. That's right. It's very important to me. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the other things that I find interesting in this new development that Facebook's basically saying, oh, look at us, we deleted all these fake accounts. Um, you know, this is an example of how reliable we are. They gave a breakdown of the statistics for the first time. And one of those numbers was that only 38% of the 2.5 million posts or 38% of the 2.5 million posts that were removed for hate speech were identified by artificial intelligence and that the remainder were reported by users. So it's interesting to me that while we talk about this community and while we talk about this whole sharing um, aspect that comes with a territory with social media, that it's also coming to light how much that regulation process is actually our responsibility and how much we're doing amongst ourselves and with our peers. I read, um, so about a month ago, Facebook released some kind of motherhood, you know, document about all the stuff that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's guidelines basically for what you should post on Facebook and what you should get rid of that its own in-house human moderators have to abide by. That just sounds like the worst job in the world <laughs> for your mental health. Can you imagine being employed by Facebook to like consider carefully all the really horrible things that go up on Facebook. I just oh, what to take oh. down. Only second to being like a police. I hope they get a lot of fresh air. Those people. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh. Okay, we might leave that one <laughs> there. I was thinking, well, I was I was like, yeah, jump in. A couple of other things about it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So um, there's a couple of um, things I think um, that in here that we're we're not discussing. I'm not talking just about us. I'm just talking about widely as well. Um, this is a commercial entity, and every time we talk about it, they're getting free promotion, and that's the same with, with any commercial entity. And they put up something like this saying, hey, look at us, you know, we've done a good thing. We've deleted 1.3 billion fraudulent accounts. We discussed that, and so we're continuing to give them free promotion. So, you know, I, I suppose that's one thing I want, you know, people to think about when they're, when they're in these conversations is by us commentating on it and, you know, we, we all have, you know, platforms as journalists, um, you know, we're giving them free promotion and just so consciously why we're doing that and, and understanding that. And that also comes back to me um, talking about, you know, making conscious decisions about being involved um, or being on social media. Um, I mean, I even have um, people I come across that, Still have made a you know that have made a conscious decision. They still don't even own mobile phones. So that that is there are still people like that in our world in Australia. But strangely enough, but um, when it comes to harvesting harvesting data, um, that's been happening for decades. Uh, if you've got insurance, your insurance provider harvests data about you and sells it to other people. If you ring up the ATO about you know, an inquiry you've got, the amount of information they alone hold about you just worries me intently because what do they do with that data? I'm sorry, they're not just, it's not just there sitting around doing nothing. Um, and yeah, every everything you engage with, you know, my flyby card is more than a decade old. It, you know, it goes probably back to, you know, the first year that they, or first couple of years that they started flybys. And I know that, Every transaction that's recorded on my 
on my flyboys card is data being harvested and sold off to other entities and you know and I consciously know that and it's not okay but that's the that's the contract that I've that I've signed up to basically by using my flyboys card yeah I don't think enough people are educated enough about the process of this it just comes down to what risk you'll accept I mean I know people who won't have flybys cards but they have Facebook accounts <laughs> and I think, and I think we'll continue to have these. Yeah, tolerance. That's exactly right. You know, it, it goes back to 1984 and George Orwell and what he wrote, <laughs> and we're living it. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Nina Kropel, and I'm speaking with Sarah Dingle, investigative reporter and presenter with ABC, Isabel Lowe, founder of Media Diversity Australia, and on the line from Gippsland, Victoria, is Jeanette Severs, an independent journalist and photographer. As Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's royal wedding creeps closer, it seems impossible to avoid stories about them in the media. Coverage this week has des- has has described an array of scandals as the family of the bride gets pushed into the limelight. First, Thomas Markle, father of the bride-to-be, was making headlines for staging paparazzi photos. Then her estranged sister was criticised by many platforms for her trying to attract attention through a series of media interviews. There are more of these stories, and I could go on for a while, but what I really just want to ask from the panel is, do we care? Sarah, do you care? Well, I mean... I care if we're paying for their wedding, but I don't think we are. So that's okay. Okay. <laughs> Concise. Good. <laughs> Jeanette? Um, well, I think everyone likes a wedding um, or, or, or whatever ceremony people participate in to, um, to commit to each other or however they happen to do it, whether it's a wedding or, or any other way. Um, and... You know, I'm, I'm just happy that they're happy. Um, beyond that, it just sort of seems to be a huge ex- excuse to send a large number of media to England, um, and I'm hoping they're having a great holiday. Um, I probably will watch the wedding, but I will probably watch it with the sound off. All I need is one picture. I just want to see what the dress looks like. I don't need to know about the background. But when I think about this wedding, it's it's quite um, a modern spectacle, isn't it? Like, you have trouble from the in-laws and, you know, <laughs> is the father going to walk her down the aisle? Is it not? Um, I, I, just, I just think that people like to see similarities um, in a big family. One as historical as the British royal family with their own and there's some really modern elements in there and I think people are just excited to actually um, have an American kind of element in it too and the Wall of Simpson they never got. Pardon? The Wall of oh, Simpson oh, they yeah, never yeah. got. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the Americans have, you know, have always wanted their own royal family um, and you can, you've just seen it over decades of them trying to emulate it. The um, the Kennedys were their were their royal family, and and ever since then they've been trying to to get their own. You know, they've been trying to get back to that situation, and and this gives them a royal. This gives them a royal in the British royal family, and you know, don't we all like, you know, a, a romantic story, um, even if you know. <laughs> even if we know real life comes into it too. But what about us in Australia and the fact that we do have all these journalists, you know, heading over there? Is there really news in this for us? I think that's a bit strange. 
<laughs> this whole junket. Who's, who's paying oh, for that? I just see a pile of them on top of each other trying to claw their way up and over the um, the barbed wire gate or, or you know, the, the, the pointed gate, trying to get up and over it and, you know, and just going completely gaga. Um, and, yeah, me cringing, going, oh, God, and what else is happening in the world that we should actually be knowing about? <laughs> It'll be such a controlled situation too. They won't be... Um given, I mean, they'll all be given the same set of, you know, talking points by the palace, basically. So, um, yeah, I guess it just, you know, for the commercials, it probably comes down to how many of their people they send and what outfits they wear. I, who knows? I think in these cases, you know, it's it's one event that could probably be syndicated. Oh, totally. Uh, you know how they always talk about, oh, shutting down foreign bureaus, we can't cover this. <laughs> I think this is one that maybe one or two just, Aussie journalists can cover <laughs> and just syndicate the rest Just of send it. a pool camera. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally yep. with you there. Absolutely. Hey, did this wedding happen really suddenly too? Or have I just not been paying attention? It feels like, you know, Crept up on us. Oh, they're going out. Oh, they're engaged. Oh, they're getting married on Sunday or Saturday or whatever it is. I, I just did that. Is We're that all working too just... hard. That's what happened. We <laughs> right. forgot to keep posted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling they might have been together for more than 12 months, but I don't know for sure. Right. Right. <laughs> I couldn't tell you either. We cannot confirm that from our sources. <laughs> and I think we'll probably leave that discussion there. And I guess if we are that way inclined, we'll be enjoying the event <laughs> over the weekend. And that's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Sarah Dingle, Isabel Lowe and Jeanette Severs. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Fourth Estate so you never miss a moment. And if you're already a subscriber, please leave us a review on your podcast app or on Facebook. It really helps us know what you like and helps other people find us as well. You can stay in touch with us on Facebook Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is is Fourth Estate AU. My name's Nina Copel. Until next time.